Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. Our guest this episode is the excellent Caitlin Mollica. Caitlin is a lecturer at QUT's School of Justice and a member of our Center for Justice. Her research focuses on youth political participation and agency, transitional justice, and human rights. Without any further ado, Caitlin Mollica. What have you loved about policy at QUT? So what I love about policy at QUT is that you come in from a really unique perspective because when you learn policy as part of a degree that isn't a politics degree strictly, what happens is you understand and you need to find new ways to see policy in the everyday world, specifically for our purposes and for our students through the justice space. So thinking about all the different ways that policy might either covertly or in a very obvious way inform policy and the way the world might inform policy, but also the way the policy will change and inform the world, I think is a very interesting and unique perspective that the justice students at QUT get that nowhere in Australia actually gets. It's a very unique take on understanding and seeking to teach and learn policy. And that's what I've really loved. And I have to say what I've also really loved is watching the sceptical student, I would say, get it and start to love it as well and see see its relevance and its importance to not only their degree and their future potential careers, but also to kind of their everyday lives. So, you know, everything from something as simple as the laws that govern how they can walk their dog or own their pets to kind of that really serious stuff about how they engage with the criminal justice system. It's really nice to watch the sceptical student tell you in the first lecture that they don't understand why they have to do a politics and policy subject as part of a justice degree come to you in about week four or five and say, I get it. I see why I'm doing this and I'm actually really loving and enjoying this. Besides your amazing teaching, do you think there's anything that triggers that? Yeah, I think, I think they, when they see that their voices, they, sorry, students see that their voices matter to policy and politics and that they can have real impact in a policy and politics space, that turns the tide. Understanding that part of a big part of policy and politics is activism seems to be something really interesting and really engaging and important for students. And it's really nice to see them kind of connecting what we're learning in lectures and what we're talking about in our tutorials to the everyday and to the protests around school striking for climate or strikes around Israel, Palestine, all of that sort of stuff is really interesting and I think does trigger that shift in students when they can see that it's not just about 
legislation and what governments are doing. It's also about the impact that they can have on their lives and the lives of their friends and family. Why do you think that's important for justice to kill? Because I think we come into justice, all of us, and it's particularly why I wanted to do policy and politics, wanting to make a change, wanting to see our lives and the lives of others improved and be better. Fundamentally, at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, what's most important are our our relationships with people and making those relationships sustainable and positive. And I think justice and policy and politics within that is a big part of why that can happen and what students can do to feel like they are having control over their relationships, both, you know, their very interpersonal relationships, but also their productive relationships, their career relationships, their relationships between their lecturers and their students. I teach for anybody listening that has had me as a lecturer, you know, I teach through stories because I think stories matter. Stories are how we understand the world around us and stories are how we engage with the world around us. Because we have this old adage, right? You never know about something or about someone until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Policy and politics enables you to do that walking and to talk the talk and to walk the walk. So that's why I love it. And that's why I teach it. Okay. So tell me what excites you about policy then. So I come at policy from the fact that I'm a, well, I like to say I'm a reformed lawyer and Within that kind of reformed lawyer space, I'm also coming at policy from the perspective of wanting to change things and make things better because there was a deep-seated frustration in the work that I was doing as a public prosecutor with the institution and how the institution doesn't necessarily enable equity. We talk about black letter law and we talk about due process, but we don't actually often stop to think about how legislation and how the practice of justice actually enables equity and fairness within a system because it is about creating due process for both a perpetrator and a victim. But so often they come at the expense of the other and so often justice and due process for the perpetrator comes at the expense of equity and fairness for the victim and human rights for both perpetrators and victims and the complexities of that. What drew me to policy and politics was trying to find a way to explain and engage with that complexity that stepped outside the black letter legislation of the law because the black letter legislation of the law can't do that because it is very written. It's based on precedent. So there's very little room for movement and change. But where you can get movement and change is through policy and politics, specifically the advocacy and enabling and empowerment of voices that are traditionally marginalized from those institutional processes. The big part of the research I do is thinking about how young people's voices can inform and change institutions. Because whilst I find institutions to be very problematic, I also recognise the importance of institutions 
two democratic systems. So that's reconciling in my own head is about thinking about, well, if I think the institutions are part of the problem, what can we do to change and enable and reform them? And more importantly, what can we do from positions of privilege of which I have as a white middle-class woman who is very well educated? What can I do from that position of privilege to enable and empower traditionally marginalized people who may not have that same privilege to actually transform the institutions that are fundamentally disempowering them in the first place. Thanks for raising your position and privilege. As the amazingly high educated white woman that you are, life has always been a breeze. Everything is coming. (laughs) No, I mean, you know, I acknowledge my position as privilege while also acknowledging that life hasn't always been a breeze. I come at my position also as somebody who has a chronic illness, who has to exist in a world that is fundamentally very ableist and doesn't actually know how to respond to things like disability and chronic illness in a productive way. I think what I have learned is whilst respecting my position of privilege, there's also a necessity to be resilient and to keep going when things don't work the way you want them to, which is often when you're talking about and doing policy and politics, very rarely do your ideas work the first time or very rarely does the activism that you're doing work the first time that you do it. It's about resilience. It's about believing or having a cause, having the values and always following your values and moving towards those and recognizing that you have to keep going whilst also recognizing that stuff is hard and that's okay and that you will fail, but it's not the failure that's the problem because failure is how you learn. When things are hard, having to, having to struggle, having to get up and give a lecture with a pounding migraine because that is the lecture schedule time and that is your job, is hard, but you do it and there is resilience in doing that. The struggle is what's important. The fight is what's important. And that's also to say you don't do that by yourself. I am nothing without my community of colleagues and friends who are wonderful people and will support and help lift me up when I am at a point of failure, when I am at a point where I just can't today because I do have the chronic illness and I do live with that in a society that expects you to get up and show up and be productive every day. And sometimes that's not possible. So it's about balancing and knowing when it's okay to work through it and to be resilient and when it's okay to ask your community for help. And one of my big pieces of advice that I give to all students is to find those people, find that community that will help you to be resilient, but also know when 
they might need to tell you to take a break because you won't always know that yourself. I certainly don't. You talk about resilience a lot, and I guess I'm interested in what resilience means for you. Yeah, I mean, resilience means to have a few different things for me. I think it is that capacity to keep trying when things don't work and when you do fail. But it also, resilience to me is the community, yeah? Resilience to me is being able to know when I need to ask for help. So the strength to keep going is resilience, but also is the strength to know when I need to stop and ask someone to help. What do you think of that whole argument that resilience is a double-edged sword? Because I guess the more resilient you are, the more people will just keep asking of you and expecting more of you, despite the fact that you're chronic almost doesn't change and in fact may get worse and be worse over a period of yeah. time. Talk to me about that resilience as a double-edged. Yeah, so resi- I mean, it is. this is something that I am still perpetually struggling with as kind of I, th- I think about what it means to be a lecturer and a teacher and a researcher and what it means to work in a society and a community because I think in not talking about chronic illness and in fighting through a chronic illness or feeling like I have to fight through that chronic illness because that is what society expects of me, even if they don't say it out loud. It's that subconscious ableist, well, what we value in society is productivity and if you can't be productive, that's the problem. I feel like, and this is where my position of privilege again butts up against this notion of resilience because if I can't say something and if I can't know when to stop or have the confidence to say I can't give that lecture right now I have a migraine who can right so I think what I struggle with most is being resilient which further perpetuates the ableist society which I think is so problematic to our communities and recognizing that productivity as we understand it in our kind of neoliberal community and a democracy that values hard work and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and all those stereotypes that come to define Australian society but modern society generally I think is problematic but also I'm perpetuating it by doing the things that I do to work with chronic illness to try and meet that model of productivity and high expectation. So you've also talked about failure. Tell me about a time when you sucked at something and how you've dealt with it. Oh man, I was the worst public prosecutor ever, which is... (laughs) I can't believe that. What in your your perspective, what made you the worst public prosecutor ever? I just... uh, I... And this comes back to this struggle I have with acknowledging the importance of institutions, but also knowing how problematic the institution can be because of its very strict procedures and processes, which are necessary for the functioning of an institution, but also marginalising in so many really problematic ways. And that struggle often led me to make really bad decisions about 
whether a case should be prosecuted or not and to fold in a case and say, we're not going to prosecute it, even though my gut told me we absolutely should prosecute it. And rules of evidence are very different from your gut. I think, I don't know whether it's a failure in the traditional sense that anybody else would see it as a failure. I think it's more of a, a failure in the sense that my values didn't align necessarily with the process of the law. And this is why, I mean, you make the decisions to change and you recognize that it's okay that when you don't fit, when your values and your capacity don't fit with the job that you're doing, it's okay to acknowledge that and look for something else. There's a really great statistic that um, comes out of policy and policy, politics research that says that today's young person, so that's individuals between the age of 18 to 35, will have at least five careers in their working lifetime. And I think we need to get better as a society in recognizing that it's okay to call it. It's okay to say, I'm really shit at this job. I'm really not good at it. I recognize the importance of this job and that other people are amazing at it, but I am not. So I am going to go and see how those transferable skills that I may have and be good at in that job can move to something else and be something else. I am really good at talking. Surprise, surprise. I am quite a good writer, I would like to think. I have high levels of critical thinking, I would like to say. All of those skills which are necessary to be a good lawyer actually also are really good for skills like writing policy from a legislative perspective or for advocacy in a non-government sector. So it's about recognising that there are fundamental skills that you need that can actually go to a really broader range of professions. And if one profession doesn't meet your values, doesn't meet your expectations, it's okay to call it and to say, I'm going to look for something else. And that you actually aren't alone because one in five young people are doing that. Awesome. So politics and policy seems to me to be quite a precarious area to be working What's your, I guess, your advice to students or your top tips to students on dealing with things that are precarious? Think outside the box and come back to the fundamentals. So like I said, in your policy and politics major, you will learn fundamental skills about how to be a good writer, how to be a good talker or a good arguer how to be persuasive in what you are trying to say. Those are fundamental skills that you can use in almost every profession. And I think what we as scholars need to get better at is helping students with those fundamentals and recognizing how those fundamentals can be sold, right? So it's about not only having the skills, but also teaching students how they can sell themselves and tell an employer that, yes, I have this policy and politics degree and it means I can write a policy paper, but actually I can write a good policy paper, but a policy paper is fundamental to any good writing and any persuasive writing. So maybe I can also be a really great journalist or maybe I can also be a really great 
PR person for an NGO or any PR person, right? So focus on the fundamentals and find something that you're passionate about. Think at the end of the day, everything is about passion. If you love what you do, you'll be good at it. If you don't love what you do, you, you won't. That's what I've learned. You have to be, to be good at everything. <laughs> no, you don't. Well, and this is kind of goes back to when I say good at it, I think it's a perception of we, at the end of the day, what you define as good is what matters. Yes, you have metrics and you need to meet performance indicators. But again, that's an institutional thing. So, and a need to reconcile the institution's formal metrics when you do get a good job and meeting and exceeding these versus what do you think makes somebody good in a career? University trains you to have the critical thinking skills to make those sort of assessments about what is good in a career or what being good at something means. And it all comes back to your values. So I think it probably actually, it's less about being good and more about finding a career or finding a space within a community that aligns with your values and enables you to build a community around you that will not only celebrate when you are that traditional understanding of good and meeting your performance metrics, but that will also celebrate your failures in a way that helps you get better if you need to get better or a way that celebrates your failures in recognizing what you learn from a failure. Because sometimes a failure is inevitable and a failure doesn't mean that you did something wrong. And so having a community around you that will help you understand the difference and help you see the difference between I really goofed and I should do that better or look, it was a failure, absolutely, but not necessarily a failure of my making and kind of moving forward. What do I learn from this? How do I move forward from this? Think community, coming back to community makes any failure help better, I think, or productive, you know, traditional institutional standards. <laughs> So you said like what students should do. You also said uh, academics need to get better at helping students. Do you have any thoughts on how we can? I think we need to get better at, and there are many, call it my, my colleagues in the School of Justice that are wonderful at this, but getting better at meeting students where they are in their skills and their capacity, because I think when you meet students where they are, not where you think they should be, they will catch up to where you think they should be much quicker. But when you try to move along at a pace that is untenable or just doesn't allow for the student to engage, then there's always going to be that disconnect between the student and what they're learning. So I think meeting students where they are is really important and also giving students the confidence to see what they already know but don't necessarily know they know. 
you may come into a subject around policy and politics and think, not only do I know, not know why I have to do this subject and that's really frustrating, but also I don't know anything about policy and politics. And I think, or I hope what I do in my courses is show you that that's not true. Even before I teach you anything, you already know a lot. But my responsibility as an educator is to help you harness and help you shape that knowledge into something that is going to help you do what you love and find a career that you love, no matter what that career may be. And really thinking outside the box is the biggest kind of advice that I can give for anybody wanting to go into policy and politics. There are going to be finite government and government governance jobs in a traditional sense, working for government. But there are a broader range of jobs working as a policy officer or as a policy advocate in the non-government sector. A lot of private companies and industries need students who have a fundamental understanding of policy and process and procedure. And what policy and politics teaches you at its very core is about policy, process, and procedure, and how to identify those, evaluate them, and potentially improve them. Because at the end of the day, all institutions and all organizations are striving for that next level of productivity. They're striving for change in some capacity. They're striving to implement ideas and policy process and procedure is how that's done. And that's what you learn as a policy and politics student. Do you have a favourite policy ever? Oh, look, I'm a sucker for a global policy. I think first and foremost, the UN Declaration on Human Rights is on the face of it a policy but it's also just the most beautifully written document that governs what should be our shared value, just in terms of what we owe each other as human beings. Just think it's the most beautifully written document. And if you took my course, JSB 270, Human Rights and Global Justice, you know this because I've waxed poetically about the beauty of the UN Declaration on Human Rights. Ad nauseum. <laughs> Eleanor, Eleanor Roosevelt, she was a genius. Eleanor Roosevelt, tell me about that. She was. So Eleanor Roosevelt was one of the primary, when they were kind of thinking about what it means to have human rights and what it means to codify human rights, they kind of got together a committee of people um, to talk about this. Now, the caveat being it was mostly Western privileged white people and not a lot of women, but Eleanor Roosevelt was one of the key architects of this global human rights movement. That's amazing. I've learned something. I didn't know that. Awesome. That's all. Thank you. This interview was hosted by the wonderful Dr. Jodie Dietz. Judy is also our co-producer alongside the excellent Dr. Caitlin Mollica. Editing by Kelsey Adams, that's me. Music by Poddington Bear. And this podcast was developed with support from QUT.
Thank you for listening.